0: of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Fred Moss. He's a graduate of Northwestern University Medical School and a licensed psychiatrist who has consulted patients, practitioners, medical facilities, nonprofit organizations, and community groups for nearly four decades. He's now dedicating his efforts to establishing his brand, Welcome to Humanity, as a home base for his work as a speaker, consultant, and advisor, and to his mental health and life coaching practice as a non-medicating psychiatrist.
2: Welcome. Tom, thank you. Um, Fred, welcome to the show. And um, Fred and I have crossed paths intermittently. I was on his podcast, what, last year, I think it was, for a bit. Mm -hmm. And he is an unusual person that he is a psychiatrist, done sort of traditional psychiatry in, in different ways for a long time. And then he sort of had the same journey that I that I did, realized that traditional sponsorship for me and traditional psychiatry for him was not as helpful as he would have hoped. So we switched gears pretty dramatically. So I'm interested in hearing, Fred, your journey. Um, you currently live in Grass Valley and I'll let, the, let you tell the audience what you're up to these days. Um,
3: so welcome. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Sure. I'd like to like to let you know how this all went. I, you know, in a way going back a a little ways, I have always been enchanted with the whole notion of communication and conversation, creating action, creating ideas and creating action. As a child, I used to watch my two brothers and my two parents speak to each other. And then before too long, they were actually doing something based on how the voices that they were sharing with each other and so uh as i grew up as a teen people started sharing with me i loved talking and i was learning how to listen but i did love talking and um you know each time i went into the whatever the next phase was from high school to college to whatever was coming next i always thought that i was more likely to get training to learn how to become a master communicator when i finally got to college at the university of michigan i was really actually pretty Mm, disgruntled i was uh, pretty disappointed with with the idea that it looked like this group of people wasn't going to be ones that were fairly committed to uh progressive conversation so i ended up dropping out of college and coming back home and my mom got me a um, application to work as a child care worker as a state hospital so that at least i would have something uh, to do so that i could eventually buy my car and drive around the country and figure out what my life was about So I got that job and I started really working with kids and I worked with uh, young you know, 12 to 18 year old boys over the next several months and then it turned out over the next several years really exploiting this notion that communication and and being connected and uh, having great conversations was at the heart of all healing. And the thing that was most disappointing to me then was the way the actual psychiatrists were treating the children so you know we would call a psychiatrist and say the child was agitated or up late or in a fight with his peer or not doing what we wanted the psychiatrist would come and have one word with the child a couple words with the nurse put something in the chart and then we'd have to hold the child down to inject them with some sort of massive sedative usually in the antipsychotic form um and then if the child was like dead quiet for the next day or two we called that a success and i just could not really handle that and <clears throat> one day i guess i made the decision to go back into school even though i had vowed never to go back but go back to the school and actually become a psychiatrist so i could bring communication back to the field well wow, that, that's
2: that's a that's a big job so wh- what institution were you at when that was that was in on?
3: michigan that was at uh Fairland center in pontiac michigan i have okay. a very warm space for that institution for sure i spent the next four or five years there um and applied to medical school and then in chicago i did similar stuff so um my moonlighting in chicago was also with child and adolescent uh working in the state in the local um psychiatric hospitals and then my practice has been you know evolved because as you know david in 1987 or so is when prozac was introduced and biological biological psychiatry got its birth then and Before too long, I was like forced in some ways to become an expert in the actual field for which I was fighting. And it was like, wow, I now am the medicator. I now am the psychopharmacological expert. I now am the one who is choosing to chemically or physically restrain the patients that I'm supposed to take care of. And it's my signature at the bottom of these orders. And I just couldn't live Uh, each and every day. There was soul sacrifice for sure. So in 2006, as you imagine, it which is another, you know, 15 or so years later, um i began to you know take off patients off their medicines take patients off their medicines uh, the less risky patients take them off their antidepressants or anti-anxiety agents if they had been doing okay up until that point and sure enough they got reliably better and i guess that doesn't surprise you but it surprises nope. many and uh so as they got better i started you know taking them off a little bit higher risk patients maybe patients who had had diagnoses for 20 or 30 years and sure enough david They got better too like everyone got better as i removed the treatment they didn't get just a little bit better they got reliably better such that their diagnosis disappeared right now now i was in a real quandary because it was i wanted to scream this from the mountaintops because everybody was still medicating everybody and i've instead for the last 15 years really gradually sort of backed out of the conventional model and began to really look at ways to bring the skill of communication to the heart of the healing that each of us is looking for with respect to optimizing our life so right. now i'm back to communication connection uh, conversation creativity to create community and collaboration and uh, i have finally we're doing work where i'm actually healing people i'm actually healing people through my uh coaching my transformational coaching
2: yeah no i'm excited about that you know i went through a similar thing with spine surgery course wasn't working very well and it turns out we're actually doing spine surgery on anxiety.
3: Exactly. And it
2: really doesn't wow. work well. And of course, you have this, now you have the stress of surgery. You have the stress of a failed surgery. In addition, patients patients are now angry that they went through the surgery. They're angry at the surgeon. So you have, you have no, another whole level of or layer of angst around having spine surgery that didn't work. Right. And so, of course, you're in psychiatry. It's the same thing. And so I want to go back to the conversation a bit because... I know you weren't taking people off medications because I'm strongly guessing that you were talking to people. Mm-hmm. So, um, so my question is, so I've thought for a long time, you know, I have my thing called the doc journey and we have different things that we do, which is a structure, but I felt for a very, very long time that the number one factor that helps people heal is their relationship with their doctor. For sure. By far. And so we talk about this a little bit later, but that's been taken away from us by the business of medicine. Mm -hmm. And so people don't feel safe and we don't take time with the doctors, et cetera. I mean, doctors don't have, we're not given the time to talk to our patients anymore. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't feel safe with your doctor, who are you going to feel safe with? Mm -hmm. So, so going back to the conversation, so something changed. In other words, you took people off medications, but you're also having some conversations that were, that were probably making a huge difference. I'm curious Mm -hmm. what those conversations looked like.
3: Yes. So really, you know, what people want more any, than anything in this world, and I think we're talking close to universal 7.8 billion people, whatever is walking the face of the earth, is to be heard for what their voice is. It's to be heard for their authentic message. And it takes something, whether you're a doctor, a friend, a family member, a colleague, a neighbor, a teacher, whoever you are, it takes something to actually get yourself out of the way long enough to listen to where these people are coming from and not just patients really it's all of us we're all curious we're all deeply interested in having what and being gotten and having what we have to say heard by another. So I think the refinement over the last 15 years has really been to be curious and to be radically listening to what's out there when people are speaking. Now, when people feel gotten, that's when the magic or that's when the miracle of healing really takes place. And that, indeed, doing surgery on anxiety doesn't seem like a very good plan uh, from a linear perspective. But in reality, what's so interesting is you can do surgery by listening.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) I like that. That's very good. And can you explain that a little bit? I mean, I I 100% agree, but I'm just curious what your take is on it.
3: Yeah, what I think what we're really talking about is that the the um, the end uh, manifestation, the end symptom manifestation, the end uh, pathway manifestation of the symptomology can be literally lifted by listening to another and actually getting what's at the source of them not being heard, of them being under self-expressed of them not resonating with another of them being alone in whatever they're uh dealing with and having that resonate and create the symptoms that perhaps are leading um other physicians or other care uh providers to think that surgery is the, to think that the knife is the only way to go after these things when in fact listening to another can bring forth healing that otherwise might have appeared to be um, uh, uh, unimaginable?
2: Well, what happens is that you ch- when people feel safe and heard, it changes their body's physiology. It changes. Exactly. You, you. So, I mean, my concept is we have your circumstances or stresses, then you have the status of your nervous system, it's either calm or hyperreactive, then you have your body's physiology, which can be either safe or threat physiology. Mm -hmm. And when you're sustained threat physiology, you feel agitated and anxious. Your body is having an inflammatory response against itself, for goodness sakes. It turns out that essentially all chronic disease, both mental and physical, is exposure to sustained threat physiology. Mm. So there's a term, as you know, called medically unexplained symptoms. Have you heard this term?
3: I have heard this term, yeah.
2: Right. So it means, okay. I mean, 90% of symptoms in the body are the interaction of your stresses versus your brain and you're in threat physiology. So you're racing, heart rate, sweating, stomach issues, all this stuff is from your body's chemistry. And so doctors are saying, well, we know you're suffering, but we don't know the reason. So they're going to call it MUS or medically unexplained symptoms. And what that does, it just destroys people's hope. Yes, But it gives them the doctors a diagnosis they go, well, sorry, I can't help you have a good life.
3: Mm-hmm. And of course
2: it's the opposite of what you're talking about. People are definitely not feeling heard and they're now being labeled. Right. And labeling is probably the antithesis of being heard. Yes. And I know you've seen this a tremendous amount from your perspective, but I'm excited to hear your perspective because all of us label people is this human nature, but then you have to figure out who is this person behind the labels Mm-hmm. And physicians in general, when somebody comes in with chronic pain, they're quote, all sorts of labels go on to the patient from the doctor with medically unexplained symptoms being just one of those. But it dashes hope. And we do know that lack of hope is actually inflammatory. So we're doing exactly the opposite of what you're talking about, actually listening. And I don't know, I have not had a chance to look this up for a long time, <clears throat> but there's a lot of literature showing that listening by itself is a healing modality the
3: healing modality
2: right so um i don't want to put you on the spot but i mean sure. <laughs> i i mean have you looked at it i haven't i looked at it years ago but there's a lot of data that says listening to patients is really flat out healing it's not some imaginary process oh, but you're changing the body's chemistry
3: yeah Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, it's funny that here we are two very accomplished physicians actually speaking in public about this topic and brain
0: fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
3: like wondering to ourselves or you know the shockingly uncovering the possible very real truth that he- that listening is a healing modality when in fact we both know in our heart our soul our spirit that listening can be in fact the only healing modality that is necessary absolutely we- for conditions that otherwise appear to be oh so complex and also oh well-defined and journals and textbooks and you know workshops dedicated to it when really at the source of it frankly frequently enough it's just the fact that the person there who, who's carrying around that diagnosis still has not been heard for who they are and what they say matters
2: right i mean i talk to my fellows a lot and it's, it's interesting you talk about how, how you like to talk and my fellows used to ask me they go well don't you ever get tired of talking? And I go, mm, no,
1: not, not really.
2: <laughs> I can talk for a long time. But, you know, as you know, when you're talking to a patient and we can talk about this a little bit right now is that it's hard to connect to the patient unless you're connected to yourself. Beautiful. And so as you talk to your patients, you get to, so I, what I used to do, I used to acknowledge the labels I put on mm. the patient, like every human being you meet. They go, okay. I have this label? And I would name the label. Then I would trying to f- find out who is this human be- being behind the label. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take much time really. And I would ask a simple question. You know, sometimes stress can change your body's chemistry and you can develop symptoms based on stress. I would simply ask them what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist, but as you know, people suffer a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering out there. And so, if we don't look at that dynamic connection between the stresses in your nervous system, we're treating only the symptoms. We're not looking at that root cause of people's lives. right. And somehow we put people's lives on the back burner that this is not that big a deal, but that's what causes physiological changes that causes mental and physical symptoms. Right. And so I'm fascinated that we talk about listening being the only solution, because I would agree, it sounds a little off base, but, I got to say one more thing here, because I know this is your show. I don't want to take I'm fine. the show here. You're great, But but I mean, the surgeons, the data out of Baltimore show, shows that the surgeons are only acknowledging the risk factors for poor surgical outcomes 10% of the time. Mm. And we know that the risk factors are anxiety, depression, not sleeping, catastrophizing, you know, injury, conviction, et cetera. Those are documented poor risk factors for a poor surgical outcome but yet only 10% of surgeons are actually talking to the patients enough to acknowledge those risk factors. Mm. So we're doing 10 to 12 hours of spine surgery instead of actually listening. Mm. 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 And you're, and then what happened to me at the end of my career is I became better at listening. My surgical patients took themselves off the schedule. These were with severe spinal stenosis, leg pain, great surgical patients. So at the end of my practice, I was operating only on less than 5% of my patients. So when you talk about listening being the only modality, I I find that pretty fascinating.
3: Yes, it's really true, and you know, thank you for being the physician that you are, and for walking that path honestly with your, with your, you know, with your soul. Because really, it you know, the empirical evidence supports listening as not only a healing modality, but perhaps and likely, and in my world, I would say. confirmed as the primary or often the only healing modality necessary to bring someone back to homeostasis to bring someone back to center to bring someone back to uh being um whole and complete right. and you know the thing about listening is is often in, it's often interchanged with this idea of talking to somebody but actually talking to somebody and listening are two different things completely Absolutely. And our physician friends, and me too, I'm certainly guilty of this, are capable enough oratorians so that we think that when we're having a conversation and we're sharing, 80% of our words are filling the airspace. And then we call that, we talked to the patient. <laughs> That's not right. the same as authentic, radical listening. It's right. simply not. Listening is an activity. Listening is an active process that isn't just a matter of shutting up in between the things that you otherwise would be saying. Right. Right. It's really an art form. It's really a feedback loop. It's really hearing not only what's here in the vocal spoken word, but what's underneath. What's it, what's really being called for? Where is that pain and misery? Where are those real wounds? that are here from either the past or are being, um, you know, miss misaligned with how one's life is going. That has perhaps, you know, almost like mental ridiculopathy that then gets created. Right?
2: No, absolutely. So there's a lot of layers to this. So what I want to do in the next podcast with you is, you know, really put out there what your approach is, what message you would like to get out to the world, How can we sort of change the medical profession a bit to actually reflect more of these concepts that are here? So, I mean, I'm excited. I didn't talk to you about this particular topic earlier so much about the listening thing, but I've felt this for years. I Mm -hmm. haven't really talked to anybody. It's been so clear as far as the effect of listening. And I am going to say something that may not quite resonate with you as a psychiatrist, but I'm going to say it anyway, (laughs) is that, you know, we put all this stuff in quote, a psychological process is the whole body response. I mean, your body responds to threat in a way where you're, it's, your, it's your nervous system, it's your anxiety, it's your bodily responses, irritable bowel, spastic bladder, it's your body response to stress as a unit. So that's what happens in medicine. And I don't know how to, I guess I'm going to ask you to try to say this the best way you can, but sure. when patients say, look, okay, I feel listened to, I feel safe, I feel comfortable, symptoms actually disappear. They do. And and so they're say, So what the doctors do, as you well know, they start of say, well, it was psychological, right? Like it wasn't real. It wasn't real, and it could not be more real. And again, ninety percent of all symptoms, mental and physical, are created by sustained exposure to stress chemicals. And we know that stress kills people. P- Mortality rates higher, suicide, depression, hypertension, anxiety—all these things are higher with chronic stress. So dying isn't psychological. No, <laughs> no. So. I'm just curious how when you explain to me, I see exactly what you're saying, but when you talk to other professionals, health professionals, and you talk about how listening is the only modality, I I mean, don't you agree that immediately go to saying, well, this isn't really real? Is that a fair you know what I mean?
3: Sure. So the, you know, the, the vocabulary that we were taught during those four years and uh, includes the, um, you know, includes sort of de- de- detracting and distracting from parts of the grand scheme of what it means to be alive. In other words, you know, if people come into the emergency room and say that they just had a conversation with God or something, that is a ticket for me to actually uh, put them into an involuntary hospitalization as if that's a psychiatric um, uh, acute event, uh, perhaps a sch- schizophrenic psychotic break but you and i and everyone else knows that you know most of america and certainly most of the world at times you know spends a lot of time searching for god and some people actually find it and you know when that happens it actually changes your whole world and gives you a steadiness and a groundedness that otherwise can't even be achieved the The notion of a God-fearing person is one who typically we are admiring of, you know, that we, we really, except when they come into the emergency room disheveled and say that they just talked to God, in which case we hospitalize them for being hyper-religious. Right. So that's just a formal example, but really what right. we're talking about here is, you know, this, this... um this chronic exposure to stress chemicals as a source of uh we'll say pathology or of symptom expression is universal and there is no you know this idea of real being physical and psychological being unreal is flat out crazy absurd it's insane i agree It's just the essence of insanity and then to leave that group who thinks that as a definer of what insanity is, is also weird because you now leave it to my field, the one who you've already said everything we have, you know, we already sort of agree that if it's psychological it's sort of made up it's in your head it's less valid Um, it's not real and then we are the we the subspecialty known as psychiatry are the ones then held responsible for creating a definition of what's sane and what's insane what's normal and what's crazy and it can't be done from that space space at all it can't reliably be done because we're already one tick off of no off of acceptable place to stand from right so it's a matter of literally transforming the narrative from the ground up foundationally fundamentally looking at a wider definition of what real is a greater definition of what normal is that might include all 7.8 billion of us actually starting from the steady ground that we're all normal to begin with and this is abnormal an insane it's an insane opportunity to try to walk through this life one step at a time after all absolutely
2: so Fred, this is wonderful i'm excited to um find out what you're up to and, and how um you know we're both Can't trying to, to share we're, we're both trying to change the world it's that's sort of a tough job yeah i'm curious what your efforts you represent so um fred how do we um i don't know if you're in practice i mean how do we sure access your resources
3: right i have um I have a website which is Dr. Fred at welcome to humanity dot net. And then I have my own I, I, I'm sorry, what welcome to welcome to human welcome to humanity dot net. Right. So it's Dr. Fred DR Fred at welcome to humanity dot net. Okay. And uh that's one space that you can reach me and certainly you can email me. Um the website is welcome to humanity dot net. And then the podcast also resides there. So that's just welcome to humanity dot net forward slash podcast. Okay. Um I have a couple podcasts that i'm running i'm running another one called insanity which i uh, co-host with a good friend of mine that's two words insanity okay. Okay. and uh you know really working on my expert speaking i'm sorry my keynote speaking and my podcasting and i do a little bit of expert witness work in the in the uh the court system um i think if you're really really looking at the transforming of the narrative that's where personal coaching and group coaching comes in mm-hmm. so I'm a restorative transformational coach okay. and uh, I'm open for you know really looking at people who are either tired of the system not working for them or maybe not interested in going into the system for the first place and looking for other alternatives to handle a life that is uncomfortable yeah. so are you coaching
2: clients or professionals or both I mean, in other words say I wanted to be coached by you Mm-hmm. is it just for professionals or can patients and people also be coached by you
3: yes uh no this is uh primarily I am doing uh clients people who are not necessarily the treating professionals but I also have a coaching practice that's geared toward the caregivers okay. uh local caregivers family and friends as well as clinicians and in fact I have a couple coaching uh uh relationships with other physicians looking to alter their own Uh, narrative of how to treat patients. And that's
2: all through your website? It is. Okay, perfect. Fred, thank you very much. We'll talk to you in
3: a few minutes. All right. Awesome. Thank you, David. Really great.
1: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Fred Moss, for being on the show today and for sharing the evolution of his career from traditional medical practice to transformational coach. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com.
0: Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.